podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's a fucking disgrace. Oh, it's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was. Carlos Alberto. Maradona just walked away from Hoddleton. Maradona. And welcome back to the Scoreless Thriller podcast. I'm Alex and I'm joined as always by Leon. Leon, how are you doing? I'm very happy to be here. And we're delighted to be joined by Brazilian-based football journalist Tim Vickery. Tim has covered uh, South American football for close to 30 years and for the BBC and a range of other publications. And we're delighted to have you on the podcast today, Tim. Lovely to be here. Let's kick the ball around a little bit. <laughs> Sounds good. So this discussion has sort of been triggered. I mean, last last time on the podcast, we talked about uh, Diego Maradona. And this week, we're going to be discussing Pele. And I was triggered by it to sort of start this discussion and cover this topic by the recent Netflix documentary on Pele. Um, but to sort of begin to kind of get this ball rolling a little bit, I kind of, for people of my generation, it can be sometimes hard to just kind of quantify quite how good Pele is and trying to like understand quite what made him different to players beforehand because we try and watch the clips and sometimes you know it's, it looks a little bit iffy and there's lots of kind of jokes around the defending that he may have faced and stuff like this so for you Tim like what was the kind of quantum leap that Pele brought to football from before and what made him special? Well, I think it was really sweet to see um, recently the kind of exchange of mutual respect and admiration between Pele and Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, when uh, when Cristiano overtook his number of goals in official games, uh, and I thought that was really sweet um, that exchange between them because so often I think, as as you alluded, Alex, it becomes almost like a generational war uh, yeah. with um, the kids, uh, the kids just disparaging anything that happened back then and uh, with the oldies saying well nothing that the likes of Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo can do can ever live up to to what Pelé did uh, and obviously I mean it's it, it's very hard to, to compare over eras and and the comparison and the, the conclusion I think that we have to reach is anyway you're all welcome to your opinion about who was the best and so on but let's celebrate all of these you know they, they belong to all of us uh, and, uh, and, and and let's celebrate them. In terms of Pelé, um, I think he was probably the perfect footballing machine, both technically and psychologically. I think his, uh, his defenders and he himself have probably done him a disservice by stressing so much the 1,000 goals thing. Because I don't think the greatness of Pelé is measured in statistical accumulation. Because it then opens up to the kind of things that you're alluding to then about you know, look at the opposition and, and, and so on. You know, one of the truths about Pelé is that like all truly, truly great players, he was often at his best when it really mattered. The great players come out when the stakes are highest. Uh, Pelé was, uh, th- th- there's, a, there's a, a clip that I like to show people um, it's from the final of the, the, the Club World Cup, Benfica against Santos at the end of 62, when he's absolutely at his peak. Now, this competition, it started in 1960 between the winners of the European Cup, the Champions League as it now is, and the, and the, the Copa Libertadores in South America, home and away. And for a few years, this competition was fantastic. Unfortunately, come the, the, the late 60s, it, it, it began to become overtaken by violence and it, be, it became discredited and, and discontinued and so on. And it, it, it's one of those branches of football history that's been forgotten. But for a few years, it was the best 
club football spectacle that existed. Uh, and this was a huge game uh, away to Benfica. The first leg in Brazil, Santos had won 3-2. That's a narrow lead to take back to uh, to Europe, to Benfica. And Benfica consider themselves the favourites. And Pelé put Santos 5-0 up. Uh, and you, you look at him and he's playing against European champions. And he, he's just running through them as if he's mm. someone from a different species. He was... He was technically perfect. He had everything, right foot, left foot, in the air, um, quick, could change direction, um, intelligent, had a wonderful peripheral vision, but also he was psychologically very, very, very good. He's a, he's a perfect synthesis. Um, the two big motivational forces in life are, are pride and fear. And he had them both very, very strongly. He had the pride of his father, who was an easygoing fella, who was a, who was a, a good footballer uh, and had lots of pride in, in his profession. He's got the fear of his mother, who's paralysed by the fear of not being able to feed all of her kids and is dead set against him becoming a footballer because it's not financially secure. So Pelé makes sure that if he's going to make his living that way, he's going to be great and he's going to make money from it. And that, that spurs him on as well. Um, so... Uh, true he doesn't have the world cup in 86 that maradona has that would have been 62 but he gets injured in the in, in the second game yeah. he's still and pele is still unbelievable in, in 58 and in 70 but the world cup doesn't see him right at it's very very uh, at his absolute peak as it did with maradona in 86 true he doesn't have the influence of of di stefano who is the last great product of argentina's golden age uh, is great there, goes and launches Colombian football and, and, and makes them a power and then comes over and changes the history, not only of European football, but of the European continent with the European Cup. Um, you know, remember Spain at the time, it's only 10 years after the Second World War and Spain is still ruled by General Franco. It's like a like a relic from the Second World War. Everyone hates Spain until Di Stefano's Real Madrid start putting on shows and then Spain becomes a, a, a valued tourist venue. Di Stefano changes the course of European history. Pelé's not not as quite as influential of that, although he's he's perhaps the principal one responsible for the World Cup becoming a, a um, such a such a television event. Um, so he doesn't quite have that, but he's maybe the the the, the best footballing machine that that there's ever been. Uh, and uh, you can laugh about some of the defending. But you know those those Benfica defenders, those Italy defenders in nineteen in nineteen seventy, they're the best that's around, mm -hmm. and he's making them look stupid. So uh, he's ahead of the game in terms of his his, his his physical preparation. He's fantastically mentally prepared. He wants to uh, to use the game as a as, as as a means of of making money, which is relatively new, you know. Um, uh, and uh, he is probably the most complete footballing machine that there has ever been mm -hmm. and what what was it about brazil in that sort of period between sort of 58 and and 70 which you know allowed them to sort of create these repeat brilliant teams that sort of and also culturally sort of capture people's football in imagination well it's a it's a big country and football is the only mass sports yeah. so that helps uh, and uh, they're beginning to get money from it on professionalism With, without professionalism there is no pele Professionalism comes in in the mid '30s, so uh, you know that that that's going to attract talented uh, talented people into the game. But also, they took it very very seriously, and uh, um, there there is no there's never any success in life without failure. Losing at home in 1950 was a huge psychological blow, but also it just forced them to think about it a little bit more. And in those years between '58 and and and, and '70, um, it's not just a case of the individual talent. Because one of, the, one of the great rules of football is that the talent shines when the collective balance of the team is right. If you just put talent out there, it, it, it tends not to work. You know, like Messi against Bayern Munich last year when, uh, yeah. when, when Bayern went 8-2. When talent on its own is uh, at the top level. It's not enough. What Brazil have is fantastic organisation. They're taking things really, really seriously. Um, they've got uh, a whole backup as far back as 58. They've got team doctors, they've got dentists, they've got physical preparation specialists. And England went to the, the World Cup in 62 without even a doctor. You know, Brazil are, are totally organised. And the man yeah. behind this is, is João Havelange, who later goes on to become FIFA president. But he made his name 
um, in football administration, being the head of, of Brazil's FA, and he gets them very, very organised. Their physical preparation is better than anyone else. They get, they get their players fit. And one of the reasons they, they thought afterwards for their failure in, in 66 was that the physical preparation, uh, preparation specialist for that team was a judo fella, not a football fella. Now, at, at that time in 66, physical preparation in, in, in English football meant running around the pitch four times and then going to play golf all day. You know, <laughs> so they really meet up it. after the pub. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 1970, they only played one game at altitude, the final. Uh, Mexico City. The other games were got a lot harder, closer to sea level. But they, mm. they've done they've done a special physical preparation uh, training, with a lot of it borrowed from the the the, uh, the experience of astronauts in the United States to prepare them for the extreme conditions. And one of the players, Rivellino, he t- he told me that you know we were so fit. And the games were played in scalding midday heat. He said, I don't ever remember going over to the sideline to want to drink water. You know, they were really physically. Mm. So they had a physical edge. And also tactically, because, and this is one of the things that comes out of the defeat in 1950, they've developed the back four. Mm. And uh, uh, where, you know, the the default is still, in most of the world, it's still the WM system where essentially you're defending with three, they bring an extra man back into the heart of the defence. Uh, it means that the the midfield, because um, in, in 58, it really is 4-2-4. Four, four. The midfield is undermanned, but they've got a player there, the left winger, Zagalo, who will come back. He's one of the first players, if you like, to have two shirts, you know, to be an attacking left fielder, but also to funnel back and, and uh, an attacking left winger but also to funnel back and be a, a, and be a, a, a midfielder as well. And, and that extra defence, that extra layer of defence they had with the, the back four um, meant that in 58, they didn't concede a goal to the semifinals. Um, the, the, the kind of stereotypical view of, you know, you just get 11 talented players off the beach and yeah, send them out. Yeah, summer, summer football. And, and, yeah, and yeah, especially with Brazil, right? Yeah, and they don't care if they concede six goals as long as they can sort, they, they score seven. That is absolutely false. It's never been like that. Um, you, you've got to win here. It's all about winning. Uh, and uh, they, they worked out that with a little bit, bit more defensive cover, they would get more value from the, the, the moments of, of individual brilliance. So for, for those years, from 58 until 70, they had a lead in terms of organisation, in terms of, uh, of uh, technical, uh, of physical preparation, and also the individual talents, and also uh, tactical organisation. That starts to change in 74 when Holland come along. Because that's something new, you know, the, the total football of the Dutch, the pressing of the Dutch is something new. And it took Brazil a long time to kind of formulate a response to it. Although they already talk about this after 1966, right? Because that's yes. when they say that something of the beauty of the rawness of football is lost. Um, yeah, and it, it, it may well be true that the 1970 team wouldn't have won in Europe. That, yeah. um, that they they would have they would have found it. I mean, the the, the midfield playmaker Gerson, a wonderful player, a fantastic passer of the ball over long range, but he was smoking sixty a day, and he wasn't an athlete. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, um, if if the games had been played in Europe, where it was cooler and the opposition could have pressed him more, mm. I think uh, they might have had problems. Certainly, the greatness of of the fifty eight side is that they were the only ones to been able to, to win in Europe. Man for man, I don't think there's any doubt. If you were to pick a team, uh, the 58 side and then the 70 side, the 58 side would have many more players than the 1970 side. I think the 58 side were, were, were better. But the 70 side have one very, very powerful advantage, and that's television. Mm-hmm. It was the first one that was seen in most of the world live on TV. And the images from Mexico were just fantastic. You know, it just looks, even in black looks, and white, yeah. it looks magical. So yeah, th- that's one of the reasons that, that 70 is more valued internationally than 58. But 58, I think, is probably the greatest achievement. Mm-hmm. We spoke, also, spoke, oh no, sorry, go, go ahead, go ahead, Leon. But it's also the beauty of the storyline, right? The, the hero that after the one championship where he couldn't really play suddenly returns 
and there's so much doubt whether Pipe will be able to perform to such an extent in 1970 again. And then he actually manages and carries forward the team. And I think it's also this story that is so powerful, which is why this World Cup is in the centre so much. It's the classic story in three acts, isn't it? Yeah. The hero emerges, he's fantastic. And then the hero is challenged and there are doubts and then the hero returns and, and yeah. leaves the scene. And he could have easily played 1974, but he didn't want to because he, he knows that he's, he's uh, one of the reasons that, that, that he, he doesn't play 74 is he wants to leave the scene with the messages of, of 1970. And it's interesting, it, it was very quickly forgotten in Brazil afterwards for obvious reasons, but there were plenty who didn't think he should have played 70. It was a big. It was a debate in the in the in the local media. I mean, even the coach, right? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Saldana lost his job as a coach, as, and one of the reasons there was he he'd fallen out with Pele. Yeah. Um, but uh, the fellow who'd coached the team in '62 was also writing articles saying we got to drop Pele. We got you know we, we you've oh, got right. to get him out of the side. All of that was forgotten very very quickly when people saw the evidence that you know and he was he he really made sure that he was prepared to leave the scene. It, it, it he's not and he's he's past his peak. Although he's only twenty nine, he's past his peak. He doesn't quite run with the ball because on Pele, if you look at say 62, 63, when he's running with the ball, it's like when it's different from Maradona where the ball is tied to his left foot. With Pelé, yeah. the, the ball is like an, like an obedient little puppy dog jumping around at his, at, at his feet. But it's, it was, it's, it, you know, it was a magnificent sight. It's one of those things. I don't often wish I was older, but one thing I do wish I was older was to have been able to, to, to have seen that in the stadium. Yeah. One of the greatest stories that, that I've heard about Pelé was, uh, you know, in um, his attacking partner in, in 70 was Tostal. Tostan was the centre-forward. and improvised as a centre-forward in 70. Now, Tostan was the kid who went to the 66 World Cup and uh, um, with Pelé as well. Uh, and uh, Brazil trained quite close to, to, uh, to where Tostan was from. And uh, Tostan, so he's with, you know, he's with the squad and Pelé's with the squad. He takes his dad to meet Pelé. And his dad is, you know, an intelligent bloke, a serious bloke. I can't remember what his profession was, but, you know, he's, he's, he's not an idiot. He's a football fanatic. And when Tostal presents Pelé to his dad, his dad breaks down crying. He says, you know, it was like, it was like my dad was meeting God, you know. Uh, and uh, that tells you something about how good Pelé was. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Because I think it wasn't purely sort of his footballing prowess prowess but like what was it about Pele that he was sort of able to become the first sort of global footballing superstar in a commercially way which hadn't really been seen before well timing I think timing's got a lot to do with it and uh, just catching the start of of the television age Uh, it's such a big change in in football Um, it changes the the, it changes the finances. I mean, it didn't really happen in club football for another 25 years. It's not really until the 90s that football really becomes a, a made-for-TV thing. Um, people, I, I was born in 1965, and, and uh, in all of my youth in England, you, you didn't get any live football on TV. There was the FA Cup final. There was the European Cup final. There was the annual game between England and Scotland. You might have another couple of England games during the year, but not all of the England games. But there was the World Cup. And uh, uh, so and the World Cup was a made-for-TV event before it happened to the club game. Yeah. Which it's one of the things that gave the World Cup this, this unbelievable status. You know, because everyone watched all the games, you know, with, with months to go before the World Cup, you're getting excited about, wow, it's going to be chilly against Australia in, in you know, and, uh, and, and Pelé just catches the start, the start of that. Uh, so uh, he's, uh, uh, he's the first perhaps global TV star of the game. And he also be- has such a Because of his relationship with the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the personalities... Um, and he's inherited his dad's easygoing smile. Yeah. He's a tougher mm-hmm. character. Yeah. 
but that smile you know but part of the drive of pele and they all they all pay a price you pay a price for what for, for what you do in life um part of his drive is i fear that he he will go to his grave not able to feel financially secure so it's what child poverty does to you you know and my mum is this you know my mum uh, you know, when, when a bill comes at a house, even today, a hand shakes, you know, you can't get rid of, of child poverty uh, and the insecurity that Pele's family had, especially when he's, his dad. In this documentary or why is he is something that yes. he's conscious of? Yes. Yeah. I think, uh, um, and it took months of negotiation, uh, but I think he, and he, he's obsessed with his legacy. He has every right to be obsessed with with his legacy. And there's it, been a there's been a very interesting generational sw uh, switch in the last few years, because it used to be the case um, that Pele, good bloke, Maradona, bad bloke, mm. uh, and the younger generations they haven't accepted that now. No, it's been flipped. That Maradona is exactly. the charismatic rogue, and Pele is the company man. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and Pelé knows that there are criticisms voiced about him and, and things that he did and things that he didn't do. And he mm -hmm. knows that you know, he, he wants to control as much of the narrative as he can, even after he's gone. Hence the fact that I think he made himself open um, to the questions in, in this documentary. Mm -hmm. And I think like, it, during the documentary, he seems sort of wanted to want to repeat sort of ad nauseum, a kind of sense of modesty or like how it was never about him. In your experience of sort of reading and covering him, is, does this sort of correlate to the reality of him? Because for not me, it's, yeah, not, not at all. Um, that's Pele trying to do public relations for, for Pele. <laughs> uh, one of the uh, Brazil's most important football writer. Uh, was a fellow called Nelson Rodriguez. He was actually a playwright, uh, and uh, he wasn't. He was a very, very clever fella, and a, just a fantastic writer. He's one of those people who, once you you put one of his books down, his voice is still inside your head. Uh, and I don't think he saw very well. He didn't have very good eyesight, but <laughs> he picked Blame it up. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in the build-up to the 58 World Cup, and remember that Brazil were nowhere near considered amongst the favourites for the 58 yeah. World Cup. Um, in the build-up, he's saying, we're, we're the best in the world. We're, we're, we're going to win this. And he, he sees Gahincha, that not a lot of people had really seen. And he sees uh, Gigi. He sees the virtues of the big centre-back, Bellini. But more than anything else, he's already seen Palais. Now, I remember he, uh, Nelson is, is writing from Rio and Pelé's playing his football in the state of Sao Paulo. He doesn't come to Rio that much, but Nelson has seen him. And the, ver the main virtue that he picks out as being the best thing that Pelé has is the absolute lack of modesty. Uh, you know, you ask Pelé after the game, uh, who was the best on the field? And he'll say, uh, I think I was. Uh, and uh, who is uh, who is the best player in this position in Brazil? Uh, I think I am. You know, absolute lack of modesty. And Nelson Rodriguez identifies this. He's the first one to call him the king. Uh, and uh, he's saying, this is exactly what we need. You know, because we are the best. Let, 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 let's stop cowering in front of the of the opposition and, let, and let's go out and show that we are that, that we are the best uh, and, uh, and and Pelé carried and I'm all in favor of a bit of a bit of arrogance you know mm. bring it on bring it on you know uh, I, I think I haven't actually seen seen the documentary uh, Netflix mm. is for is for younger people you know? <laughs> <laughs> wife and my stepdaughter I think they do it but I, I don't know how to do it I've spent a lot of time talking about the documentary but I've still never seen it but these, the, the, these efforts at modesty yeah. he knows he's great yeah. You know, and he always did, and that's one of the reasons that 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 he was so great. So I can understand if if uh, you got the feeling that that was that was a little bit forced. No, I mean, I, f I feel like it would have been more, would have come across more genuine if he had sort of like, because uh, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo is, I feel, quite similar in that he hmm. doesn't make apologies for believing that he is very good at his craft. So even if it's, you know, this sort of 
forced modesty is almost more off-putting than if he's actually been like, no, actually, I was the best player on the team, the Brazil team during this period. And also because yeah, well, Pelé right. has been celebrated for this, right? Yes. Like, and, well, the the and, end and of he's... the Mongol complex and everything, that he was the one who actually took the action, went out on the pitch, made it work. Um, well, he's so... also celebrated himself for it. I mean, it was a few years ago now. It's about 15 years, but he, he did a list. He was asked to do it for FIFA, a list of the greatest players in the world who were still alive. So he did, he did a, a long list. Mm. And he didn't put... Of all of the players he played with most of whom were still alive. We've lost some of them since. He only put one, and that was his mate, Carlos Alberto, who was his mate. You know, all of the, like, (laughs) Jairzinho and Gerson, and he didn't put any of them on. And it was like he was saying, you know... Mr. Toad did it all by himself. Mm. All by himself. It was all me, you know. So yeah, it's like he, he has in that... his mind the Maradona 1986 World Cup comparison, and therefore yes. I will yes. make a point. Yes. So all of those who were saying that you know Maradona did it did it on his own, and and I was surrounded by greats, they were wrong. You know, he was making that very clear then. Uh, no, he he he, uh, he considers himself absolutely great, and. Let's be honest. He's got every reason to consider himself yeah. great. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's that, that's obviously on that. I think he's been he's been he's probably been badly advised. Mm-hmm. One of the more I think more interesting aspects of the the, uh, the documentary is how it sort of touches upon um, Pele's relationship to the military dictatorship while he while he was playing. Is this something that in Brazil people bring up as sort of a card to hold against him or something that people, you know, when they're arguing about how great Pele was, that people say, actually, he, this was something he could have done more or is it something that's largely ignored? Well, first, I think uh, you have to bring some kind of context about the military dictatorship. Um, as I say, I haven't seen the film, although people have, yeah. have told me lots about it. And it seems to me that it's not particularly nuanced or subtle. You know, it, 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 uh, it's, as it's if, a few you know, scenes, the... but then it's sort of very, so it's like it brings it. I don't know. Do you want to, how you feel about it, Leon? But it sort of introduces the, the uh, brutal military dictatorship. Pele kind of answers a couple of quick, quick questions about, like, did you know what was going on? I didn't really feel it. And then it kind of breeds past it back to the main storyline. Yeah, and you see him shaking hands with Medici. Medici, yeah. Yeah, that, that's about the extent to which it's covered. Yeah, I mean, the, the military dictatorship took place in, uh, took took over in, in 64. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, a lot of people have, have tried to overlook this, but it had massive support, massive support. And a lot was made a few years later. Of a, of a march of students against the military dictatorship of 100,000. Well, back in 64, when they took over, they were putting a million out on the streets, you know? So th- th- there was big support for this military government, which at, at the start was fairly moderate. As so often happens with author- authoritarian solutions, it becomes more authoritarian along the way. You know, the, the, uh, and th- th- there's a change of power inside the dictatorship. There's almost like a, a coup inside the coup. And from like 68 to, to 72, it's really hard line. And then the people are disappearing uh, and, and, and so on. Um, for the mass of the population, I can understand why... Because the fault line was between the government and the left-wing intelligentsia, the intellectuals. This is a lot less like the dictatorships of the 70s in Chile and Argentina, where it is all-out war against working-class associations, against trade unions and political parties and, and, and so on. Um, in Brazil, the, the working class, the, the trade unions and so on, were not so strong. The main fault line was middle-class intellectuals. They're the ones who are, who are, who are dying and who are being tortured and, and, and who are suffering. Now, Pele's not part of that world. For the majority of, of Brazilians, the, the, the feeling at the time and, and, and the rhetoric that's being ramped up at the time is that Brazil is enjoying an economic miracle. 
1970 World Cup is the first in Brazil that's seen on TV. That's significant because TV ownership is going whoosh because suddenly more people have money to buy TVs. So there, there was um, there was considerable support for the military dictatorship. And most people just kind of got on with their lives. It didn't touch them that much, but it did touch the middle-class intellectuals. Now, he's criticised in a film by Paulo César, Paulo César yeah. Cajú, uh, who's from a different generation. He's 10 years younger. So Paulo César has grown up formed in some way by what's happened in the, in, the, in the United States during the 60s. He's been radicalised by that. He's also from the Rio favelas in the rich area, very close to the middle-class intellectuals. And he's been taken under the wing of the middle-class intellectuals. He's, 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 he's almost like been adopted by them as the, the, the radicalised, politicised player. Uh, and that's formed his worldview. He's got every right. I, I, I know him. He's, uh, he's, he's a fascinating character. Um, Paolo says every right to his opinion, but his experiences are different from those of Pelé. Now he comes from the backwaters and uh, the majority of Pelé's people, the people with whom he grew up, their lives haven't been as directly touched by the military dictatorship as is the case with Paolo Serza, who has more, more contacts with the, with the, the middle-class intellectuals. Um, so, uh, I think trying to hang too much on that on Pelé is harsh. It's also trying to put too much importance on a sports star. You know, I mean, uh, that, that kind of Superman idea that, that the sports star is is going to change society. Um, that's, you know, that's, a, that's an infantile hope, I think. What, what might have been worth exploring, and I'm told that they didn't explore it in this, in this documentary, is, is the 74 World Cup. Because years later, from a safe distance, Pelé said that he didn't play in 1974 as a protest against the military government. This was at a time when the military government was widely seen as a bad thing. Now, with Bolsonaro in power, there are those who think it was a, it, it was a good thing. You know, the hmm. uh, history perspectives on history change through time. Um, but that, I thought, was a was a silly declaration from Pelé because I don't think it's true. Um, if he did not play the World Cup as a protest, he didn't let anyone know. So what's the point? You know, if, yeah. if, if, if you're making a protest yeah. and no one knows you're protesting, what, what's the point? And I went in depth with this a fair few years, about 15 years ago now, with both Zagalu, who was a coach of the team, mm. and Tostão. And they both gave different answers. Tosh Downs was, no, he didn't want to play 74 because he wanted to leave the stage in, at, on, on a high point of 1970 because even then he's obsessed with his legacy. Yeah. And Zagalo said, uh, well, he's, he's getting more money from, I think it was Pepsi that he signed a contract with in the States. He's getting more money from, from them. He doesn't need the money for, for, for us anymore. So uh, that's why he didn't play. I think both of those are true. The, the the legacy and and the financial reasons um but there i think pele lets himself down making the false claim that he was protesting about the military government in 1974 from a safe distance yeah. i think that opens him opens himself up to the charge of hypocrisy has he has he ever had to i know he sort of only really does uh, interviews where it's sort of he can control the pr stuff but has he, has he ever had to answer further questions on this or is it just sort of Something that threw out once and then... Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons I think he agreed to, to, to do this. I mean, I've never spoken to him. I, I wanted to, I tried to, um, when I was, I was first here, this is in the mid-90s, uh, when he was sports minister. Because obviously as sports minister, he, he has to be a bit more open to, yeah. to questioning. Yeah. And he gave an interview where he confessed that he hadn't done enough for footballers at the time, you know, at the time he was sports minister, he was pushing through legislation, giving footballers freedom of contract. You know, the the, the Bosman thing mm. for for Brazilians, it's known as yeah. as, as the as the, as the Pele law. And in an interview that he gave there, he just made this offhand remark. You know, yeah, when I was at the height of my, I had power there that I could have used. I should have used more 
for uh, to help other footballers. And I thought that was fascinating. For me, that, that kind of opened a door. And I wanted to do an interview with him then, just to let's see if we can open that door wider. Let's see what we can get in there. So I got in touch with the, with the ministry and uh, they would give me an interview, but I would, I would have to go to New York to do it. Uh, and at the time, I didn't really have money to get a bus from one side of Rio to the other. So I had to, I had to abandon, <laughs> New York I had to abandon that, that idea. And then once he stopped being sports minister, I, I gave up that plan because it was obviously not, not going not, not gonna to happen. Um, but it, it would have been interesting back then, 25 years ago, when he was younger, fitter, sharper. It would have been interesting, I think, to, to, to have that, that, that dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's like it's interesting about, you know, thinking about sort of athletes using their platforms very much in the in the news, especially like in the UK with Marcus Rashford and stuff like and yeah. other outspoken athletes, you know, how we sort of judge athletes from a previous generation, because I know the comparison between Pele and Muhammad Ali is quite often quite often made because they're sort of peers, but mm. I don't think it's usually I don't I feel like it's a little it's very easy for us to sort of go back and judge Pele and say he should have done more for this sort of safe distance. Yeah, I think the, the, the comparison with Ali is is fascinating. Um, Ali, firstly, he's operating in a context when the lines are very, very clear in terms of you know who is black and you know who is white. You know, there are states of the United States that were prohibiting black people from voting that had only just stopped lynching them. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you had one black grandparent, you were black, you know. So uh, and, you know, the, the, in a lot of the towns, the, the, the railway divides, you know, one side of the tracks is white, one side of the, the, the tracks is black and so on. So you are it, it's easy to know where the sides are. Although the issue on Vietnam exactly. was more contentious. Exactly. And he was very so, outspoken on that. Yes. Too. Yes. So you've got those two things together clear racial divide where it's clear who is who and the and the vietnam war um pele brazil the situation is totally different who is black and who is white it's a it's a social divide it's a much more subtle thing you know uh many many years ago when i was first here i used to give english lessons to uh he worked in a financial market and he was black or uh in his case i think his dad was white but we would certainly consider himself black and he considered himself black. Uh, and then every, every few years they do a census and people come around to ask questions and he saw the fellow filling in white. And he said, well, hang on a minute. Take that, take that away. Take that out. I'm not white, I'm black. And looking at him, you would certainly think he was black. But, you know, the, the fellow said to him, you can't be black. Look at where you live. You know, so Brazil is... is much, it's much more subtle and there wasn't the question of of of, of vietnam um yeah. so uh uh it's it's very very different i mean ali there shows a kind of collective thing you know he was willing to sacrifice the, the peak years of his he did sacrifice the peak years of his career for for a political cause and pele would never have done that i think but Ali is operating in a in a in a situation where it's very very clear who the enemy are. Yeah. So that makes organisations so much so much easier. No, of course. Although I mean part of it by the regime uh, and the authoritarian measures in place at that time. So you yeah. had you had a group of minority where, where it was clear that pressure was on um, and also that there were clear social divides between that group and then everyone else. In yeah. Does that touch Pele's life? No, probably not to a large no. extent. But, no. but yeah, but I was wondering because I don't feel... I don't feel the um, the question was whether Pelé could have changed something meaningfully by um, resisting or doing something different. Uh, probably more about whether some symbolic act of not shaking someone's hand or not, you know, becoming uh, the face of, of of some government would would have been possible at that time, and whether that would have helped 
and whether yeah, it was I mean, even on his radar. No, I don't think so. He was on the radar of Toshdown. Um, Toshdown was was an exception. He was he was politicized then. But they probably have talked. They they talked yes. then, right? Yes. Um, but again, you got to remember that uh, Brazil. Uh, and really, the the, the 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 father of modern Brazil, Getúlio Vargas, yeah. who was president between 1930 and 1954, with one interruption, he was president, both elected and also uh, uh, staging a, staging a coup. Uh, he staged a coup in the early 30s and ruled as a dictator for uh, until the end of the Second World War, and then he came back in 1950. Um, very, very much a kind of benign Mussolini a benign tropical Mussolini. And some of Brazil's legal code is just taken straight out of Italian fascist uh, um, legislation. Uh, as I say, relatively benign. There's no, there's no militarism. There's no political party. Um, so there, there are big differences between Vargas and, and Mussolini. Uh, but Vargas is an incredibly important figure uh, as a father of the modern nation in an extremely authoritarian way. And so what happened, you know, he's, he's, he shoots himself in 54, uh, partly in a bid to stage off a coup, I think. And then in 64, you've got a, you've got a, a the military takeover. Yeah. So, you know, in all of the years of Pele's life, most of it has been under authoritarian governments. It's normal. Yeah. You know, it's only from the, the perspective afterwards, you know, you look back afterwards and think, yeah, there was a military government, but at the time it was normal. That 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 was the government. No, the fact that they you you haven't voted for them, it's authoritarian, is you know, to mo that that's the government. And it would have been it would have been seen as extremely unpatriotic to do to to speak against them in in, in any way. It would have been a really, really radical act of someone in entirely sure of his political position to uh, to take some action against Medici. Uh, and um, you know, I think Pele's got the education at the time yeah. for that. You know, you're, 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 you're loading too much responsibility on, onto, onto a sports star, I think. No, I'm personally not sure whether no, 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 I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm not accusing you. I'm saying <laughs> no, I'm fighting the fight, yeah. Because um, I, I feel like this is a recurring theme where sports persons who are on the public stage are being blamed for something. Well, you yeah. know, you have state leaders uh, um, talking to autocratic leaders all the time, and so it's it is it is a difficult terrain, definitely, yeah. um, and especially so the, uh, for for people who maybe did not have the education in, in especially these areas and sure. um, to navigate this. Um, but I do think, though, of course, there was a shift from the Brazil in the late fifties and early sixties where. Um, everything was up and coming and developing and then suddenly you have a military di dictatorship and tortures are occurring more and more so so probably from, also yeah, Pelé and everyone has witnessed yeah, that there was from, a change from the late from the late 60s um but there is an economic miracle as well and this is being really trumpeted no an, an economic miracle miracle mm -hmm. people people are living better it's not until the 70s that the government finds itself in political problems um, for two reasons. One, after the the the, uh, the oil crisis, the external situation is harder, but also that economic miracle it it is not sustainable because it concentrates income too much. You're not widening sufficiently um, the income, uh, as happens say in, in post-war Europe, yeah. where you you widen the income and then you begin to get a self-generating economy because people have more money in their hands and they, they get they go and spend it you know in brazil it was uh, it was it was still too the wealth was still concentrated and this this has been the, the problem always you know and i'm not sure how they're going to get out of it but uh um for a long time that that regime had had significant popular support and and this is this is a big difference i think from the the, the current the Bolsonaro government, um, that military regime, it came in with a with a project. It was genuinely interested in developing the country. There were lots of big infrastructure projects, uh, the, the kind of stuff that these days 
And even though Bolsonaro loves the military government, these days, those kind of state-run infrastructure projects would be dismissed as communism. It, it, that just shows how the, the political discourse has moved to the right over, over the last few decades. Yeah, yeah I'm conscious of, of, your, of your time. So just to, as you've done just there, bring it forward to, um, to today. I noticed how we sort of talked about um, football or sports that are sort of staying out of politics. And then sort of to compare that with a lot was sort of made in Western media of the support of Brazilian footballers for Bolsonaro when he was running for election. Has that support waned or changed or in, in the years since or have some been more outspoken against him or is it kind of more of the same? Well, I, I can't believe that even he would vote for himself now. But he only would, you know, but I can't believe that even... <laughs> even and the, the, the thing is a calamity of, of incompetence, either incompetence or, or genuine malice. Uh, and I honestly don't know. Um, yeah, uh, I, 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 I'm terrified for, for this country sometimes because just rationality has, has gone out of the window. You know, in March the 22nd of last year, Bolsonaro gave his own measure of failure and, or success dealing with COVID when he predicted that the, the COVID total death toll in Brazil would not reach 800. You know, we're getting two, almost three times that number dying every day almost a year later and his analysis still hasn't changed you know? so you know, when uh, when that kind of change of facts brings about no change of analysis that's obviously uh, uh, evidence either of madness or of or of or of very very bad intentions uh, i'm i'm feeling a lot at the moment for ronaldinho and Ronaldinho, of course, he lost his father in tragic circumstances when he was very young. And I think that that's something that, that had, a, had a strong effect on his career, on the precariousness of life and enjoy yourself today because you never know what's mm. going to happen tomorrow. Mm. Uh, Ronaldinho used his significant prestige to endorse Bolsonaro. Yeah. And his mother has just died of COVID. You know, I mean, he must, he must, even at some uh, subconscious level, be feeling guilty about the, uh, the, uh, the line of, of political action that he endorsed. He's not a specialist, but he doesn't have to give an opinion. And he gave his, his opinion. And his mother is now dead of COVID. Uh, I, I can only feel sorry for him, you know. And uh, what a terrible, terrible thing to happen. Um, one I know, I did CV with him once. Edgy Milson, the, the, the central midfielder, or centre-back, played for Barcelona. Mm. Very intelligent man. Uh, quite impressive bloke, I think, an impressive man. But he's an, he's another one, his supporter. And uh, whether he's, that's still the case now, I don't know. But he was on the radio in, in Barcelona a few months back, you know, obviously in Barcelona because of the links in the fight against General Franco. They're appalled that you know, Brazilian ex-players of Barcelona are supporting Bolsonaro. And he was asked, well, why are you supporting Bolsonaro? And his, his response was, well, he's a man of God. Uh, the you know, this, this this kind of religious bullshit mm-hmm. it goes very deeply in 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 Brazil, uh, and a lot of the religious weirdos and fundamentalists and, and and maniacs are still behind behind Bolsonaro. Um, uh, whether whether there's been a, a significant change, I don't know. You would hope so. And especially when, what was it, two weeks ago, Bolsonaro said, well, we've got to stop whinging and crying about all these people dying. You know, you just got to get, you know, think for fuck's sake. It's a psychopath. Mm. It's an absolute psychopath. It's got nothing to offer. And that's the comparison between the mili- now and the military government of, of 64, who did big in, in infrastructural projects. Um, the economic uh, program of Bolsonaro, which he doesn't understand, is privatise. You know, privatise, uh, reduce job security, reduce wages. You know, the, this in a poor country like Brazil, it's been a disaster everywhere. You know, the, the, the neoliberal privatise and, and make everyone precarious has been a disaster in rich countries. You know, what it's going to do with Brazil, and that goes hand in hand with his, what it does seem to be his, his political priority, which is spreading arms around the population. Because, you know, there one or two things can happen in Brazil. Either either it's going to be social inclusion, 
or you know you're gonna and this this is the view of 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 the rich you're gonna need guns to to, to fend off all, all of those poor people um so you would hope that that people have uh, uh, more people would have would have seen through him I, I i'm i'm sure his his support base is shrinking um but i fear that that kind of social conservative message uh resonates very strongly with uh, with a lot of brazil's footballers you know who've grown up in the evangelical churches I and mean, just the shit and the poison that they that they they pour out, you know. And I've got I've got a mate uh, from Belgium, who uh, a journo journalist who who spends a lot of time in Brazil. He comes over here a lot, and he he, he has much more patience for the old footballers than I have. And uh, on the last time he was over, he was just in despair at them, and he was saying, you know, there's there, there's there's something that all of them are saying. If it's not them, it's their wives or something. They're, they're saying, you know. Today, if you want to get a degree in a Brazilian university, you've got to be a drug drug taking homosexual. Uh, and and that kind of culture war thing is where Bolsonaro is very very strong, you know, traditional values and 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 and, and so on, uh, and and football in Brazil is a very 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 right wing socially conservative world. Um, so, but, but what, uh, how come? I I wonder. Where where does this come? Yeah, from? I would have thought of with the legacy of Socrates and some you know other people that it wouldn't be middle class intellectual. It's what he was, you know. He was, yeah. he was he was a he was a middle class in, intellectual, son of a bank manager. Um, because, and I, I think one of the tragedies of of the neoliberal era is is the destruction of of the trade union movement. Mm. Uh, yeah. And the the trade union movement was for many people it was like a religion. Um, there was a thing of human brotherhood in there. It was also a way by which an alternative narrative was spread throughout society. You know, a narrative of solidarity. Social um, empowerment, yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and you see clearly, um, say, uh, the north of England, uh, places historically very associated with the Labour Party, voting for Boris Johnson in the last yeah. elections. Yeah. What a lot of that has to do with, I think, is... There's no trade union movement. There is no alternative narrative. So the the narrative of of nationalism plays even stronger. Uh, and in 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 Brazil, where the uh, that that kind of trade union thing has always been weak mm. um, as a kind of substitute religion, what you have is is the real religion, um, Christianity. And, uh, well, I don't know if you've ever read any of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there are some lovely things in there, but you know, it's absolute vile stuff. You know, and the, the New Testament is openly pro-slavery. The law of Moses is openly, openly pro-slavery. Uh, um, it, it's entirely anti-women. Um if if, uh, if a young woman is married as a virgin and she's not a virgin, then uh, she should be stoned. She should be stoned to death, and uh, you know, uh, homosexuality as an unnatural act, and so on. And and uh, that kind of gibberish and obscurity and nonsense has a has a real pull. In in, in as this is apparently right. This is apparently morally correct and, and 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 anything else is sin and it, and it is a deviation from what is what is morally correct and a lot of the, the bolsonaro um uh, people would call themselves uh good citizens yeah. um that that's one of their favorite favorite phrases they're citizens of good as a kind of direct yeah. translation from 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 the portuguese uh and that means kind of believers in in the old hierarchy um over the last few years there has been progress uh in women's rights homosexual rights and so on these are not necessarily left-wing causes these are these are things that can happen perfectly well inside libertarianism inside capitalism because capitalism must create new markets 
it, or or it dies. So you know, let let let's exp uh, the, the power of of the pink pound, as it's called in 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 English. You know, homosexuals. It's a market, and so on. So these are not necessarily left wing causes, but they've been associated with the left in Brazil um, because the right is is religion based, very socially conservative, uh, and uh, a lot of the players have have grown up in that environment. So Socrates was very, very much an exception, you know, well, well read, well studied, philosophical, upper middle class. Uh, um, so he's, he's, he's very, very much the, 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 the exception, exception. which pulls the rule. Yeah. yeah. There, there's not, there's not an, uh, there's not a lot of an alternative left wing pro solidarity, anti hierarchy view in Brazilian society generally. Uh, so there's, there's not a lot for the footballers, not particularly educated or someone, just to latch on to. You know, the way that, say, Robbie Fowler in Liverpool back in the day, when he was a young kid without a lot of education, but he just automatically associated himself with a trade union struggle because yeah. that was the world that he'd, he'd grown up with, a world of, of, of solidarity and, 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 and trade union struggle. Um, that's not so much part of the experience of of a lot of people in in Brazilian football. Their experience is is more being told that uh, questioning authorities is, is sinful. Mm -hmm. And how has that sort of um, has that manifested itself in the sort of Brazil team since Bolsonaro has uh, come to power, like in the youth sides or something like this? Not that I know of, although yeah. uh, I mean they haven't played that much you know, yeah. because of the pandemic. Um, it's it's clear that the coach that Chichi is against. Yeah. Very clear. Mm. And he, he doesn't he doesn't make it obvious and explicit. Um but others on his coaching staff, um, um there's a name I could mention. It, it's a name that you'll know, but I'm not gonna mention it, uh are rabidly in favor of of, of Bolsonaro. So uh, that that's a dispute which may well be going on even inside Brazil's coaching staff. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I think that's everything that I wanted to cover. Do you have any final questions, Leon? No, um, no concrete question. But I think it's very interesting, the thing that you tapped into that if there's no such a thing as trade unions that create a point of social solidarity and interaction um, and also social meaning, that then religion as uh, a counterpart, you know, had gains a lot of attractive force. Um, but then I was wondering whether football in and of itself can't be part of an individual identity, something that does create a union, a bond between players and helps them, you know, to spend time and fill their days with meaning. And that it somehow then has to latch on to like another thing, such as uh, religion or whatever, um, to actually, you know, ca yeah. carry this forward. It, it's a great point. When th those of us spend, who spend our time working with football, so often we think, you know, are we part of the problem or are we are we part of the solution? Uh, th that's a vision of football that, that I love to have. Yeah. Uh, the idea of it creating links of solidarity um, between people from different nations and so on, and that exists. Yeah. But it also, uh, you see the other side in Brazil and you see it so much because it's just all about winning. So, you know, I mean, uh, players are regularly in Brazil attacked by their own fans uh, regularly on even even relatively successful teams. You know? <laughs> uh, it, it's one of the big one of the big things. You know, the the airport. You know, when they come back after humiliating mm. defeat, or at the training ground after a humiliating defeat, groups of fans invading, yeah. uh, invading the airport or, in, or invading the the, the the training ground, or even attacking the team bus. When that happened with with São Paulo. A couple of months back, that they were uh, their team bus was attacked by its own fans on the way to a game. <laughs> <laughs> just wait till they're finished. Yeah, give them a chance. So, yeah, exactly. So there's there's not a lot of solidarity there. If if it's yeah. if, if football is all about winning, yeah, then that solidarity goes. You know, if it's all about the result and not about the activity, then there there's even less chance of creating that kind of solidarity. Yeah. Okay, so I think it's been an absolute pleasure. Tim, I've been enjoying the, the Brazilian name podcast. 
that you've been running recently. Would you like to uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what that's what that's about and what you cover? Yeah, uh, um, the Brazilian Shirt Name Podcast is we 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 pick a game from history, uh, and we talk about the game and its meaning and its influence. But we also try and put it in a in a cultural context, especially with what was happening in music. At, at that time oh. and it's it's a great chance to use football as a starting point to talk about other things um and uh you know i, I spend enough of my time talking about football so uh, you know, <laughs> to, to, to use that as a starting mm-hmm. point to then talk about what was happening musically um it's 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 fun for us to do we've had some great people sometimes it's just me and dot and sometimes we we, we bring in a we, we bring in a guest um and uh, yeah people seem oh. to be be really enjoying it it's a it's a different take because as i say it, it's not kind of in a in a nerdy way just kind of restricted to the football yeah. we're trying to look out to especially um, what's happening in music which often has absolutely nothing to do with what with, with what's happening in football so it, you know and, and what's happening wide more widely in society and which particular woman dotton was seeing at the time all of these things we can we can explore uh, in, in the course of our podcast all right tim thanks a lot again for for joining us on the podcast time it's been absolute absolute pleasure yeah, thank you so thank much. You. That was so interesting. Well, brilliant. Yes. Glad you enjoyed it. Podcast Network.